Welcome to the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm here with my regular co-host, Todd Pruitt, the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And it's also a delight to have, uh, for the first time as our co-host, uh, the delightful Amy Bird, also known as the housewife theologian. Now, I like to think of Amy as the Pat Benatar of Reformed <laughs> Theology. And I also have a, a, a rock analogy for Todd, and he's promised that he won't hit me until he hears the, the explanation of this. But I like to think of Todd Pruitt as the meatloaf of Reformed <laughs> Theology. I uh, knew it. No, the, the, the reason, it's nothing to do with, with your dimensions, yes, Todd. Yes, thank uh, you. Thank but you. I, I think that people like to listen to you, but are embarrassed to admit it in public. <laughs> so you're saying I'm a guilty pleasure. I, that, that's one way of putting it, yes. Uh, 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 a dark secret sin might be another way of uh, thinking about it. Well, I'm so. hoping that my new title gives me better music. Well, I, 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 I would <laughs> think so. I mean, I, I, I'm going to have to sing Bad Out of Hell or something. I still think Dead Ringer for Love is, uh, after the St. Matthew's Passion, one of the great moments in Western music. You, you have Meatloaf and Mahler just yeah. kind of battling it out to see who's going to be the My mother told me when, when, when the video for that song came on the, the TV, and, and Cher was there, I think Cher in the video, my mother said to me, that is the kind of woman you must always promise me to avoid. <laughs> well, I have a, a good Pat Benatar housewife connection. Oh, Yeah, my dad used to always tell me, because he liked Pat Benatar, sure. that um, once she had children, she quit her career to be a mom. Oh, there you go. There you go. There you I go. know, it's pretty um, impressive. Yeah, uh, I think Meatloaf... Quit his career because people stopped buying the records. But um, that, that could be. He would That's, do anything for he love. He would do anything for love, but he won't do that. Two out of three ain't bad. Right. Yes. <laughs> anyway, today's topic, we want to talk about uh, Halloween and Christian attitudes to Halloween. It's a topic that comes up every year. It's a topic that can be quite divisive within the church. So we thought it might be... Uh, not only entertaining, but also instructive to, to, to bat it around on the mortification of spin. He did the match. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It got on in a flag. He did the match. He did the monster match. Now, Todd. Uh, yes. I know you're a, a big Halloween man. Any Love it. Costumes that you've worn over the years that, that stick in your mind? Well, you know, I think uh, more more like it, it probably stuck in my my neighbors' minds. I mean, anything that was spandex, <laughs> I was I was most comfortable with. Uh, uh, no, I mean, you know, I I grew up uh, in a very conservative Christian home, and and in Houston, Texas, we did Halloween. My brother and I uh did halloween we would dress up like uh, superheroes and go get free candy and um while we were aware of the fact that there were witches and skeletons hanging around that sort of thing uh, it never dawned on us that that we might be engaging in something that was wrong or untoward or 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 unchristian for us it was about uh, looking like spider-man and getting lots of candy yeah, was your experience similar, Amy? Or oh yeah, Spider Man? Um, no, not Spider Man okay. so Catwoman, much. I think my favorite costume was I was an alien for like two years in a row because <laughs> oh, sure. you could just be totally creative there. You know, you didn't <laughs> have to you know, outside of the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good thinking. And now that I'm a parent, I think that um, the most important part is 
you know, stealing your favorite candy bars <laughs> out of the bags. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Growing up in Britain, it was interesting that uh, when I was small, Halloween was not a big deal. We have November the 5th, Guy Fawkes night, when we burn a, a, an infamous traitor in effigy uh, each year. Unless you come from a particular village, I think it's either in Suffolk or Sussex, where they burn the Pope in effigy uh, each year, uh, commemorating the foiling of a Catholic plot to take over the Houses of Parliament or blow up the Houses of Parliament uh, in the 17th century. And that's somewhat eclipsed Halloween. Uh, this is, no, this is come on, this, this is serious business. I just have to say, is there any is is there any debate now why the British are more intelligent than us? I'm talking about <laughs> Spider Man and candy, and Carl would Still be able to give yes, Carl would be able to give a lesson on Houses of Parliament uh, from his childhood. So so that's good. That's good. We're happy for you, Carl. Remember, remember the fifth of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. <laughs> well, we, we burn this traitor Guy Fawkes every year in effigy, and it, it, it distracted attention from Halloween. But I would say in the last 20, 25 years, uh, there's been a creeping uh, American influence, and that trick-or-treating has become much more significant part of uh, British party culture, for want of a better term. And it's raised the question, of course, uh, 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 to what extent is this pandering to an interest in the occult, uh, forces of darkness, forces of evil? We know as Christians that although Christ has defeated, decisively defeated these powers, the prince of the air, etc., etc., uh, we also know that this world is a spiritual battleground, that uh, though the victory is assured, it is not yet fully consummated. And therefore, it is a, a serious question. Uh, is indulging in something like Halloween, is it uh, dancing with the devil, if you right, like, is right. it dabbling in something that could, could actually subvert or undermine the witness of the church? Right. Yeah, and that's the question that I struggle with because I, I don't, on the one hand, I, I want to be able to say to my brothers and sisters who who see it in very, very stark terms. It's very, very wrong. I want to be able to say, oh, lighten up. But I don't really have a, a text of scripture to back that up, not that we always have to. And yet at the same time, I, I want to explore this notion of, is there an equivalency to participating in Halloween with, say, bringing a Ouija board into your home or going to see uh, someone to read tarot cards? Um, perhaps there might be. I, I'm I'm now a bit torn, Carl. Now you've messed up my entire Well, you know, plans. like the church plays or whatever, or VBS sometimes, I get kind of annoyed at the whole um, cheesiness factor. Mm -hmm. And people get dressed up in their biblical costumes. And I just think, you know, I, I just don't like these images before me right now. It's really reducing the greatness of God. And that's what I think of with Halloween is we're kind of mocking um these things. It's, it's cheesy. It's a costume. I don't believe it's indulging in spiritual darkness. And I don't think it's the same as bringing in a Ouija board or going to see a fortune teller. Right. And besides with the biblical costumes, I could never tell Moses and Noah apart. So that's my biggest problem. <laughs> Noah's the one with the hammer, I think, <laughs> right. generally speaking. So, so what you're saying, Amy, is that actually 
uh, the, the, it, the celebration of Halloween could be a mocking of the impotence of the powers of yes, darkness that, in exactly the light of the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting take that I'd not, uh, not heard before. Todd, do you have any reflections on that? Well, my first reflection is that Amy has more courage than I do because I refuse to stake out a position. And so now I'm feeling very, very ashamed that she was very quick. Hey, you're to in the PCA. We don't expect you to stake out a position, buddy. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I think it's very legitimate what what Amy says. I, I mean, I have no problem. My conscience is not seared at all um, by having allowed my kids to participate in, in, in trick-or-treat when they were younger. I have no problem at all handing out candy at my front door. In fact, I'd feel kind of bad if I didn't do it. I would feel like I wasn't being a very good neighbor. Um, my struggle is... My brothers and sisters who whose conscience is seared on that issue, should my position be to try to help them see that there's liberty there, or is it legitimate for them to uh, to be concerned for some of the very questions you raised earlier? We we were talking before we started recording about the fact that you know Halloween in Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I live, is a very different matter than say, Halloween somewhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, if I lived in the Bay Area, uh, I, I may for a whole host of reasons say we can't participate mm-hmm. in, in Halloween. Um, and and I, don't, I don't think that's a cop-out. I, I think that geographically sometimes uh, the, the issue becomes very, very different. But I know for me at least, um, my conscience is not seared at all by handing out candy and by having let my children trick-or-treat. Yeah, and you raise an interesting uh, point there, one of contextualization. And contextualization, I think, is a massively overdone phrase sure. uh, that there is a, a universality to human nature and a universality to the gospel that naturally, automatically limits the importance of context to a certain extent. But having said that, particularly on issues of cultural signals, I think contextualization can be important. It's, it's not directly touching on Halloween, but I'm thinking, for example, of Paul's teaching on the way women should dress in, in 1 Timothy. You know, they're not to have braided hair or pearl earrings. I preached on that a couple of years ago, and it's always risky to preach on a passage like that because you know there are a number of women in the congregation who have braided hair and <laughs> pearl earrings. Uh, when you do some digging around that text, you find, of course, that what Paul is, is alluding to there is the dress code of these professional, uh, up-and-coming, proto-feminist kind of women in the ancient Roman world who uh, were promiscuous in their their sexual morality and advertised their status Mm -hmm. through wearing certain things, pearl earrings, having braided hair. And I don't think Paul is saying there it's sinful for a woman to have pearl earrings. I think he's saying it's sinful for a woman to dress in a way that the culture will interpret as indicating promiscuous sexual availability. Bring that to bear on the Halloween issue. Uh, I think you raise an important point. What does Halloween mean in my particular context, in my particular town, in my particular state? I can imagine a situation where, as the pastor of a church, one would want to say, members of this church should not celebrate Halloween because you're sending a, a signal there that you're part of a promiscuous community or you're part of a gay community or something like this. Mm-hmm. So I do think the, the, the contextual aspect is, is important. Do you have any, any thoughts on that, either of you? Well, we, we were talking earlier, and a friend of ours, her husband grew up in, in the Bay Area. 
And his whole response to Halloween is quite understandably revulsion because of all that it is associated with, as you can imagine what it would be associated with in the San Francisco Bay Area. And had I grown up in that context, I'm sure I'd feel the exact same way. And I think Christians in that cultural milieu may very well be under an obligation to say, we cannot publicly associate with this activity because of what it has become. Um, in, in a way that somebody in Harrisonburg, Virginia may not even have any idea of. So I guarantee the citizens of Harrisonburg, Virginia uh, do not see um, Halloween as primarily a celebration of homosexuality. But in some areas, that's exactly what it is or whatever else it might be connected to. Amy, what are your thoughts? Well, I was talking to the two of you about how I'm far less concerned about the scary, gory Halloween costumes as I am about the whole new sexual culture that has um, been introduced to Halloween. And it's even hard to bring my children now into a Walmart and shop for Halloween costumes because a lot of them are sexual in nature. And I totally don't get that. But I'm thinking contextually as well, um, you know, being invited as an adult to a Halloween party, you know, that would probably be an instance where I would choose not to go because depending, I guess, on who's giving the party but <laughs> in, and who's attending, you will know that, you know, there's going to be a, more of a sexual nature mm-hmm. to the costumes. So that would be, even in our area, an issue where the context could change Right, Halloween. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of this points to the fact that we're always looking for, for easy answers. Uh, there is a a tendency to a kind of legalism within all of us that we want instructions that make every decision we come across to be an easy, an easy one. But often, uh, it, it's an overused phrase. But often, these things are wisdom issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, one sits under the the consistent preaching of the word week by week, and one trusts that the Holy Spirit will use that to cultivate Christian character incrementally. And as part of that cultivation of Christian character, we develop. Uh, the faculty of wisdom for dealing with these these kind of things. I mean, another related issue that perhaps we could touch on at this point, it's, it's not such a burning issue now, but it was maybe five, ten years ago, is you know, should you allow your kids to read Harry Potter books? And it always struck me as, as fascinating that Christians were concerned, or many Christians were concerned about children reading Harry Potter books who were not so concerned about them reading C.S. Lewis's fantasies or Tolkien's fantasies because you know, Lewis and Tolkien were Christians. Uh, the fact that uh, they too dealt with supernatural themes, they dealt with worlds of goblins and elves and uh, demonic kind of presences was seen to be sanctified just by the fact that, hey, these guys happened to go to church on Sunday and, and, and took it seriously. Um, we never, as parents, my wife and I never imposed that sort of censorship on our children's reading. They, my oldest son read Harry Potter. My youngest son, who is a Tolkien snob, refused to read <laughs> Harry Potter, but only because he regarded it as radically mediocre <laughs> compared to Tolkien. Uh, but we didn't impose rules on that, and, and yet found ourselves frequently uh, the odd people out in any gathered room of Christian parents at that time. And it was becoming... If I can, I don't want to trivialize it, but it was becoming the equivalent to me of vegetarianism. I don't want to offend any vegetarians out there, particularly any Reformed <laughs> Baptist vegetarians. But, but you, you, we all know vegetarians who are so 
blinking righteous yes. because they're vegetarians. They're, they treat other people like dirt. They um, The proper term now is plant-based diet. Oh, so oh yeah. Plant, these, these plant-based dietitarians, <laughs> these vegetarians, not all vegetarians are only insensitive to the, the plant-based diet yes, community exactly. out there, but some vegetarians can be very self-righteous and all they do is they don't eat meat. Yeah. But then they turn it into a burger. <laughs> exactly. And I carry bacon in my pocket. So. <laughs> but it becomes a form of what I would describe as, as meaningless righteousness. I'm better than you are because I don't eat meat. I treat my employees like dirt. I never speak to my neighbors, but I don't eat meat, and therefore I'm better yeah, than you. And I don't let my kids read Harry Potter. I and don't so let my kids read Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Therefore, somehow, I'm a more faithful Christian than you are. And, you know, as you might have guessed from my tone of voice, I'm... I find that slightly jarring, if I could yes. put it very mildly. Yeah. What do you think about that? I agree completely. And, and I, was, I was sort of astonished by the amount of heat generated over the Harry Potter issue um, among Christians. But I think it had a, a bandwagon effect. You know, evangelicals are notorious um, suckers for, for bandwagons. And this became a thing for us to grab hold of um, and... And I don't think a lot of people were doing it consciously, but I, I think a lot of this happens on the subconscious level where it becomes a thing whereby I can measure my goodness. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I would never put it that way in my own mind. I would never allow myself to think that way consciously. But that's what I'm, I'm grasping for, this way for, for me to, to very much... And, and, and our, our own self-imposed laws do that for me. It gives me a way to, to know that I'm doing better than you are. Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why legalism is so dangerous and why adding to God's law, our own inventions is so dangerous because it is a surefire way for me to, uh, become a a self righteous, uh, legalist. And, and I'm afraid that we could do that in the whole discussion over Halloween, um, if, if we take it beyond those categories that we've already discussed it in certain contexts, it would probably be very inappropriate. Um, Amy, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm not going to go to an adult Halloween party. For one thing, I think it would be really goofy, which is what offends me the you most. You could dressed as meatloaf. Exactly. I could go dressed up as meatloaf. That is true. You could true. go as you are and people would think you're meatloaf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of scarves tied around me, that kind of thing. Um, but... Uh, this isn't a costume idea. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, that would be, you know, what's most offensive about an adult Halloween party is that it's just nerdy. But, I, I mean... I, I, I'm just afraid that what adults would end up doing with it could be inappropriate. For me as a kid, it was about getting free candy. For my boys and my girl when they were younger, the the idea of the demonic and evil wouldn't have even crossed their minds. They're out getting free candy and getting back to the house so they can dump it on the kitchen table and fight about it. Um, (laughs) However, I can guarantee in other areas of the country, I'd have to say, sons, daughter, we're just not going to be able to participate in this because of what's going on out there. But beyond that, if I'm going to establish a law and say that in West Virginia or Virginia, you've got to treat this the same way we might if we're in another part of the country, I'm just really, I'm really bothered by the potential of going there. Um, It's too, it it smacks too much of, of legalism to me. Yeah, sometimes I think we, 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 we strain at gnats and swallow camels as well. Mm-hmm. If, if I were to say to, to parents of children, do you allow your kids to watch commercials? Mm. 
What's a commercial doing? A commercial is generally speaking promoting materialism. If you buy this product or you obtain this thing, your life will be fulfilled. You'll be happy. You'll, you'll find a, a perfection to your humanity that you currently lack. Yeah. Well, that seems to me just as insidious, if not more so. More. I can say to my kids, you know, you can read Harry Potter and it's a story. It doesn't have any extra textual referentiality to use the sort of pompous language. You mean your sons didn't go out and buy a magic wand and expect it to work? No, they, they, they nor did they commit any human sacrifices as far <laughs> as I know. Et but it's, you know, we strain at the, the obvious stuff yeah. and it's the insidious stuff mm-hmm. that is shaping hearts and minds without us even right. knowing it right. that's so deadly. And we're and, feeling safe all the while. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, I'm glad you brought that up because I guarantee the images that my kids have seen over the years on television through commercials have been far more damaging to them than anything they ever saw when they were getting candy at people's homes on, yeah. on October 31st. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the gnat and the camel, all this discussion just made me think of the obvious sin that we aren't even thinking about in Halloween is that of gluttony. Oh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, talking and, of meatloaf. Uh, yeah, exactly. I just had two servings of apple crisp. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just, uh, you know, amazed at what, how my children put limits on what, what they ate because, you know, they'll go out there with the, the pillowcases. The, the pumpkins aren't Absolutely. big enough. They want to get as much candy as they oh, yeah. can. But, um, you know, they had a couple things and they walked away. And I remember calling my brother and sister up because I'm the oldest and being like, man, it seems like we ate like half our candy the first night. <laughs> Did we have less candy or am I remembering this wrong? But see, when, when we... two butterfingers and I'm about dead now. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm a, it reminds me, of, I, I would have been regarded as one of the most unpleasant people to do trick or treat. <laughs> when we were in Britain, I remember the kids would knock on the door and I would open the door and say, do I know you? <laughs> and if I didn't know them, I would say, well, go away. Shut the seat. I would figure that Truman's house would be the scariest house to go to yeah, yeah, uh, at yes. Halloween. That would not be the just candy that the parents take out of the bag. Exactly. You, know, to- you know the movie where the house that always has the thunderstorm behind sure. it? Sure. That there, was there my you go. house. Oh, outstanding. Well, you know, and, and of course, we could always recommend just the, uh, you know, an old-fashioned thing to do with your families instead of sending your kids out. You know, have a movie night. We always watch The Exorcist. <laughs> and um, so. Yeah, I think there's a new version of Salem's Lot or Carrie coming out. Oh, Carrie. Month. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, gather up the kids and go to that. But uh, mm. to take this uh, in another sort of direction that, that many of our regular listeners will be very familiar with, of course, I think it also connects to what the church is and the nature of the church's confession. Mm. That uh, as pastor of a Presbyterian church, and I'm sure this applies to pastors of confessional Baptist churches Mm -hmm. as well. I'm sure it does. But as the pastor of a confessional church, your powers are limited by the confession. Mm -hmm. The confession summarizes those parts of the Bible that are considered to be universally applicable within your congregation. And I don't think it's my job as a pastor to stand up in the pulpit and say to to people on a Sunday, do not handle, do not touch. I'm going to judge you by your observations of new moon festivals. That's not my job. My job is to to preach the gospel and to trust that that cultivates, I said earlier, uh, wise, moral, intellectual habits. It is not my job as pastor to, to micromanage the lives of the people. It is not my job as pastor to produce a set of rules by which every complicated issue that a member of the congregation is faced with, they look up the rule and simply apply it. My job is to expand and apply the word and to trust that the Holy Spirit 
will, if I can use this, use a phrase like this, give people the sanctified common sense right. mm-hmm. to handle the challenges of everyday life in a biblical manner. Right. Yeah, I, th- that's been one of the real refreshing things now in my transition over to the PCA is, is one of the things I noticed immediately as I began studying the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Book of Church Order was this priority placed on the fact that there were very strict boundaries around me as a pastor not to bind the consciences of people, that, that my power, so to speak, is strictly declarative and that it must only reflect that which is insisted on in the scriptures and, and that we are spoken to very clearly in our confession and in our book of church, church order, that we are not to exercise power over people and to establish new laws to bind their conscience. And that's really liberating in a lot of ways. Yeah, for pastor and for people. Absolutely. I mean, people think that confessions are there to allow the pastor to bully the people. <laughs> Actually, they're the there to prevent the pastor yes. becoming a cult leader, exactly. the most extreme examples. Exactly. And I would also add that... Um, uh, lots and lots of Reformed Baptists avoid that as well. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, we love the Reformed Baptists. Can't keep stressing that enough. You're lovely people. And are very welcome to listen to the podcast and uh, offer constructive criticism yes. thereafter. Yes, indeed. Well, and I think that sometimes congregants have a hard time. They want the pastor to tell them what to do sometimes in yes. areas where yeah. he shouldn't tell That's them what to absolutely do. absolutely true. Because it's easier for them and... Mm you know, pastorally shepherding mm-hmm. your flock, um, you have to guide us to go in the hard direction. Sometimes, you know, we make mistakes even, and grace is there. But um, Let's say, the maturity, spiritual maturity issue and the hard issues, they're hard. Mm-hmm. Yep. To, to say you're going to just need to exercise some wisdom here mm-hmm. that's informed with Scripture, I don't have a law to give you here, so I'm not going to because it would be wrong for me to do that. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but you're just going to need to apply uh, wisdom that, that God promises to supply us with. And, uh, and uh, that you're bringing us back there to the doctrine of God. We have a gracious and merciful God. Yes. Mm-hmm. We have not got a God who's going to strike us dead with lightning right. when we get it wrong on occasion. Right. We use our wisdom to the best we can, and we trust God for the rest, if you like. Indeed. Well, uh, this concludes uh, the very spooky uh, episode of Mortification of Spin. Uh, We hope that it has been helpful to you. Uh, It's been fun to spend this time with you. And uh, please uh, check out our website. Um, Check out the the website of of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We uh, believe in the ministry of the Alliance. We think they do great work and uh, very thankful for them for their support of this podcast. So, for Carl Truman and for Amy Bird, I am Todd Pruitt. Thank you again so much for listening in, and we will see you next time. He did the match. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It got on in a flag. He did the match. He did the monster match. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash.